Thank you for listening to the Sharon Church Podcast. If you'd like to know more about the church, please visit us at SharonChurch.com. Now we hope you learn from and enjoy today's message. Go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn to John chapter 5. Thank you all. Turn to John chapter 5. We're going to continue our worship through study this morning. Kicking off a new series this morning uh, called That You May Believe. We're just going to continue our study through the book of John, but we're going to do it chapter by chapter. So it requires a few things from us as a church. And the first is this. I cannot teach an entire chapter of the Bible. Some chapters I can, but chapters in John, I cannot teach an entire chapter uh, in 40 to 45 minutes, much less uh, an hour. So um, the Lord then has, what I've asked him to do each week is, Lord, just key me in on where you want our church to be. Where do do we need to learn today? What do you have for us this week, this Sunday? And so I'm going to teach portions of it. I want to encourage you in this way. Read the book of John. Read it chapter by chapter as we go along. You can go on our website on the resources tab. Uh, We've created kind of a reading journal for you. It's a PDF you can download. It'll walk you through some different study techniques and ways to read. Read John. Uh, we'll be here in John 5. Next week, we'll do John chapter 6. So this week, read John chapter 6. Prepare your heart for what the Lord has for us in the next week. Too often, church becomes a spectator sport uh, where you just ask, you expect us to do all the things. And, uh, and there's a lot of things that I love to do and want to do, but my main calling is to shepherd and empower you uh, to know him more fully. So I want to encourage you in that. Uh, this whole series is built from John chapter 20. Uh, verse 30, John says that I, there's a lot of things that happened in, this, in the life of Jesus, but I've chosen a few of these examples. And he says it for this reason in verse 31. These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. I want to be intentional as a church and as a pastor. I want to be intentional to teach Jesus to our people. Teach all sorts of other things that maybe you think you need, but at the end of the day, what we need is to know Jesus. That's that's what we need. And you can be around church and have heard church things and listen to the right radio stations and listen to the right podcasts and completely miss Jesus. So this book of John, the whole point of the book of John is that we might know Jesus. So we're going to study uh, that together. So we're going to move pretty quickly through it this morning. Uh, Pay attention. We're going to look at two miracles back to back. I'm going to start at the end of John 4 to give us some context. We're going to look at two miracles of Jesus back to back. John really only describes seven or eight different miracles. And so in this one setting, he's put two back to back, which means that we need to pay attention. We have to pay attention to what he is doing uh, in in this passage. I don't know what your kids are like. Um, uh, My kids like to ask a lot of questions all the time about everything. Like from the moment they wake up to the moment they go to sleep, they are asking questions constantly. And I remember before I had kids, I was like, man, I want, I want my kids to ask questions. And now I have kids. And I'm like, will my kids please stop asking questions? I can't. It's too many things all the time. And uh, my four-year-old is the best, our four-year-old Landry, uh, because uh, she is so convinced that she is right all the time. She's, she's a female. I'm just saying that she is. I'm not saying that's anything. I'm just saying she is that. And so we'll get in these conversations. And a couple weeks ago, we're having, I don't even remember what it was about, which is typical for how our conversations go. And, and she's heated that she is right about something. And I know for sure that she is not right, um, mostly because I'm 41 and she's four. And I know that she is not right. And so she gets so heated at one point that she just stops and stares at me. And she says, 
do you know what I was about to say? And I was like, I don't know. And she was like, I don't know what I was about to say either. And then she stopped. That was it. That was our whole, that was our whole argument right there, all summed up. Sometimes in talking to my kids, uh, God reminds me that the very way that I relate to my four-year-old is the same way that God intends to relate to me. And that my little 41-year-old uh, mind and ideals to his infinite mindset, to his eternal being, tries to argue with him. And he has to remind me that he's eternal and I'm 41. And I don't get to tell him what's right. Sometimes I say, God, I forget what we were arguing about. Do you know what I was about to say? This is what we're gonna read right now, what we're gonna study is that idea expressed uh, in the character and work of Jesus. If we're honest, there are many times that we forget that we are, according to Psalm 103, we are just dust. And God is God. But when we begin to inflate our own ideals, our own ego, our own opinions, our own desires, and we contrast them with Jesus, what's gonna happen for us is, at some point, if you haven't already experienced it, at some point in your life, maybe it's daily like it is for me, the authority of Jesus and our autonomy begin to go to war with one another. And on a long enough timeline, we have to believe one of those things, either that Jesus is who he says he is, or that we are who we are pretending to be. And as uh, that conflict happens, it begins to knock edges off of what truth is. And at some point, we find ourselves lost in some make-believe idea that we have because we've neglected the authority of Jesus. So let's go to John chapter four. I wanna look at these two miracles. We're gonna move quickly through these miracles. I'm gonna pause for a bit, and then we're gonna go and look at how the Pharisees, how the Jewish religious leaders are uh, dealing with this situation. We're probably about a year into Jesus' ministry. At this point, John's gonna fast forward. So we're gonna fly at this point uh, into the earthly ministry of Jesus. It's not gonna be long before we get to his crucifixion and resurrection. John chapter four, look at verse 46. So he, Jesus, came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And if there's one place I want him to continue to return to, it's there, because that's a pretty cool miracle. And at Capernaum, there is an official whose son was ill. Some of your translations there say a nobleman's son. This is, uh, this is a royal term. So this was somebody who worked in the, kind of the courts of or in the royalty of, he worked for Herod. Herod the Tetrarch, is who is called, or Herod Antipas is who this man is. He is the youngest son of Herod the Great, the great famous Herod the Great. He is the youngest son of that Herod. This man, <clears throat> this man um, would later become the one who sends Jesus back to Pilate. They have the, that whole argument. He's the one that leads in the crucifixion of Jesus. He's the one who has John arrested and then beheaded. It's this Herod. Uh, this guy, man, he's a piece of work. He, uh, he really, really, really wants his dad to like him, but his dad doesn't like him. So Herod the Great has four sons that we know of, and the first two had passed away. They were his first choices to take over after him. Then he has a third son that's, eh, okay, and then he has this son. So he had said, okay, I'm gonna give Herod Antipas. I'm gonna give him uh, the throne. He'll become Herod, the, Herod, he'll become Herod next. He'll become the leader next. Only Herod Antipas did some ridiculous things, tried to poison his dad, like went Shakespeare and everything on, on his dad and did all kinds of crazy things. So Herod the Great takes that away from this son and gives it to the third youngest son instead. And he gives this son, instead of giving him uh, great leadership and a lot of places to lead, he essentially makes him the mayor of a small area or a small town. 
But this Herod, Herod Antipas, is not giving into that, so he makes his people call him King Herod. He's a mayor. Like, he's like the mayor of Jackson. And he says, no, 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 you're gonna call me King Herod here. In Butts County, I am the king, and that's what you're gonna call me. This is who he is. This is this, is this kind of man, and he has a man working for him, this royal man, this nobleman, or um, what my translation says, an official whose son was ill. So he knows that this King Herod isn't going to help him, but he's a Gentile. So look at verse 47. When this man, this nobleman, heard that Jesus had come from Judea into Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Put together, he probably traveled on foot 20 miles to meet Jesus, that his son might be healed. He's powerless. He knows he can't go to King Herod to help him, so he finds Jesus. Verse 48, Jesus said to him, I tell you what, unless you see signs, he says, unless you people, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And the official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. He's not giving in to the attack. I don't care about signs and wonders. My son is about to die, and I know you can heal him. Please come to town. Verse 50, and Jesus said, just go. Your son will live. From 20 miles away, Jesus just heals the nobleman's son, just says the words, and he says he will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. Seventh hour would have been one o'clock. So whenever you're reading through the New Testament, six o'clock would have been like zero, and then from there, every hour. So about one o'clock in the afternoon, the fever left him, verse 53. And the father knew that was the hour when Jesus said to him, your son will live. He himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Now, if you're paying attention and keeping score, Jesus has called disciples to follow him who do not qualify to follow a rabbi. They are, uh, they're, they're not the most gifted men. They're not the most reputable men. Uh, they aren't men that anybody else wants them to lead anything. They're tax collectors and they're fishermen. Uh, they're carpenters, and this is who Jesus calls to follow him. He turns uh, water into wine at a wedding in a small town of Cana. Last week, Aaron taught us from John chapter 4 that Jesus reveals his Messiahship. He reveals that he is the Christ for the first time to a woman who destroys every relationship she's ever been in, avoids anyone, always wants to uh, avoid conversation and conflict she's gossiped about in town. These are the people Jesus is drawn to. Now a royalty, a royal man comes to Jesus, but he's not Jewish. He's not necessarily a good man. He works for King Herod, and Jesus heals his son from 20 miles away. Again, John's choosing these stories to tell us something about Jesus. Let's go into John chapter 5. Now, after this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool an Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. He gets into in Jerusalem for a feast, uh, probably the Feast of Purim at this point, just based on calendar and what um, people think is happening. 
It's not that important, but he gets there. And there's a number of gates to get into the temple by which he would bring different animals into the, into the temple for sacrifice or just to bring them in, whatever. This is the sheep gate where the Passover lambs would pass through. And here there's two different pools. One of them is called the pool of Bethesda. Bethesda, he tells us, he uses the Aramaic word. Instead of using Greek, which he's been writing in, he uses Aramaic. And why does John use Aramaic? Because in Aramaic, the word Bethesda means house of mercy. John's intentional with his language and he wants you to know in Aramaic, this is the house of mercy. It has five porches, roofed porches. Verse three, in these, in these porches lay a multitude of invalids, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. Now you're gonna notice in most of your Bibles, it skips from verse three to verse five. Does your Bible do that? From verse three into verse five. The earliest translations don't have verse four in it. And so many of our more modern translations aren't gonna put that in there because they're not sure. They haven't found the original text of that yet. Uh, the, the original King James has it in there, but maybe your footnote has it. Uh, somebody put in here that what would happen at this place is that an angel would come into this pool, quote unquote, and stir up the waters. And at a certain time, whoever got into the water first would have been healed of whatever infirmity, disease, that they had. So verse five, one man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, underline this, circle it, do you want to be healed? Which at first glance seems like an obvious question. Like it's kind of redundant. Yeah, oh, yes. I've been this way for 38 years. Yes, I want to be healed. But isn't it, a pretty, isn't it a pretty good question of Jesus? Because if you've wanted to be healed and all you had to do was get into this pool, why have you not yet for 38 years? So the question Jesus asks is, do you actually want to be healed or do you enjoy this self-pity? Do you enjoy the misery you're in? Do you like the attention you get? Do you like the excuses that you have? The question is, do you want to be healed? Verse seven, the sick man answered him, doesn't say yes. Here's what he says. Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. Sounds like excuses. So Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Two miracles, back to back. Jesus heals a nobleman's son. This man ran for 20 miles, at least a day, to get to Jesus. He's not a Jew. He's a Gentile. He is desperate, has no other chance at this for his son, runs to Jesus, gives us effort, gives us energy, uh, shows some kind of faith, some kind of belief, doesn't make excuses that he can't get to Jesus. He runs to Jesus. And Jesus just speaks the words, and his son is healed. The next miracle, Jesus now is in Jerusalem. Instead of going to the temple, he goes to this place where all the crippled uh, and the lame and the blind go this time of year because they want to be healed by this, uh, by this pool. I don't know if you've ever experienced places where the stench of it stays with you forever. Has that ever happened for you? Places you've been where the moment you think about it, the smell just wafts back to you. Sometimes it's good. Most of the time, those smells are not good. Uh, Meredith and I led a group of college students on a mission trip to Africa. And on the way there, we stopped in Amsterdam. 
And so um, Amsterdam, probably not the holiest of places, but we thought, uh, we had a layover, the person laying the trip said, let's just, there's two places we can go. We can go to the Holocaust, we can go to, to the Anne Frank Museum, um, or we can go just visit a bunch of museums and stuff. And so a bunch of people go, go to visit the museums and see the town and all that kind of thing. And I'm tasked with leading this group of college students to the Anne Frank Museum in Amsterdam, a place I've never been before. And admittedly, I am not very good directionally. I'm just not. You can give me a map and I'll, I'll follow the map, but I'm not quite sure we're gonna get to where the map says we need to go. And so I'm leading these uh, six or seven college age, mostly guys with me, and we're journeying through Amsterdam to where I think we're going is to the Anne Frank Museum. And where we find ourselves is the red light district in Amsterdam, which was just the height of my ministry career at that point. Six or seven college age boys with me, right? in the red light district in Amsterdam. And I'm just saying, I'm up here, guys. I'm up here. Eyes on me. Eyes, we're going this way. Don't look at, don't look at anything. We're going straight ahead. But then just the smell like of, of marijuana, just wafting everywhere, and it's all over our clothes. And so we get finally meet up with the whole team. And the leader, Christy, is like, where have you been? It's like, I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to talk about it. I just need phone numbers for everyone's parents. That's what I need. I just need that right now. But the, this place... Um, would have been just awfully disgusting. I mean, decaying bodies. Jesus makes his first stop in Jerusalem. He stops there. And he heals a man who never says he wants to be healed, for 38 years has made no effort to actually be healed. A man who is cast off by society, not a nobleman, not royalty, and who has made zero effort to be healed by Jesus. And when Jesus says, do you want to be healed? All he does is make excuses. On top of that, we know there are five porches full of people just like him. Jesus could have chosen anyone else who probably had a better attitude, who was more interested in actually being healed, who believed that Jesus was who he says that he is, but he chooses this man. Here's what John is doing. This should mess with you. Because everything we've been taught, particularly in the South, is that Jesus responds to people who believe in him. That Jesus comes to those who come near to him. This whole thing should completely mess with your idea of who Jesus is. Because none of this is fair. None of this is fair. The nobleman's son is not fair. He's a Gentile, he has no idea that Jesus is the son of God. He has no idea of the prophecies. He knows nothing about that. And yet Jesus, in a moment, heals his son from 20 miles away. But we can get around to, well, he ends up believing and at least he made some effort to come to Jesus. We can get there. But this one in John chapter five, if you're like me, I have a really hard time with this. This dude is lazy. He'd rather complain and wallow in self-pity than actually get up off his tail and get healed. I question if he actually wants to be healed. There's plenty of hundreds of other people who are just as desperate to be healed. And Jesus has to step over them to get to this man. That should mess with us. And maybe this is your experience in life. Maybe you've seen Jesus heal somebody or save somebody or save someone financially in this same situation. You're like, hey, I've, I've been praying for 38 years that you would heal my financial situation. Why can't you just step in? But yet this dude 
who is an alcoholic and addicted to cocaine apparently is a millionaire. And yet I'm trying to go to church every week and I can barely pay my bills. I don't, why are you stepping over me to get to that person? Anyone relate to that? Why would you heal that person? Why does that person get to have a spouse when I don't? Why, why does that family get to have children when I, I don't? Why does that mother give birth to a child when she's uh, 15 years old and yet I've been married for 10 years and I still can't have a baby? Why? We're gonna have to confront some things and John is illuminating to us this right now. He's illuminating some things to us that just don't seem to make sense. These miracles, we have to wrestle with them because they don't make sense on the surface. They don't. And we like the idea of it, but put yourself there. I don't know that we like the idea of it. But look at the end of uh, verse nine. John gives us a key and he says, now that day was the Sabbath. And if you've been paying attention to the ministry of Jesus, this should make you say, uh-oh. Because what John is saying is, hey, this is, these things have happened, but it happened when it shouldn't have happened. There's an issue, it's on the Sabbath day. And the Jews had very strict guidelines as far as what you could and could not do on the Sabbath day. This is the point John is making in uh, verse nine of chapter five. Let's go to verse 10. So the Jews, these are the Pharisees. Whenever John talks about the Jews, he's talking about the Pharisees, the religious leaders of that day who are constantly trying to catch Jesus in a lie or in some kind of blasphemy. The Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed or to take up your mat. Completely missed the miracle. A man that everybody knew had been paralyzed for 38 years is now walking and they say, oh, hold on, you can't, you can't carry that today. It's like, I, I don't even know how to walk anymore and you're upset that I'm carrying this on the Sabbath day. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man, more excuses, that man said, take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, who is the man that said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus went and found this man in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Now sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. In other words, you think that's bad? Don't go about sinning because this was for your body. That's for your soul. That's worse. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And at that point, Jesus had to be like, are you serious? I, I don't, what, why? Things were fine before. Then verse 16. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Underline, highlight that word persecuting. They were persecuting him. They were threatening him. They were judging him. They were going after him because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. They persecuted him because he was breaking the Sabbath. Verse 17, Jesus answered them. He says, my father is working until now and I am working. Verse 18, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Verse 16 says persecuting. Verse 18 says kill. The problem with the Sabbath led them to persecution. You're, you're breaking the law. You're breaking the Mosaic law, so we're gonna persecute you. Verse 18, they're seeking all the more to kill him, not only because he was breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling, his, calling God his own father, making himself equal with 
God. And here's the issue. The issue is not that Jesus was breaking the moral law or the Mosaic law. The issue is that Jesus claimed to have the same authority as God, and that's what led to his crucifixion. Everything else was just water under the bridge, but the moment Jesus says that God is my father, which makes him equal with God, now they want to kill him. This is the same for us, because the issue for us is not whether or not Jesus has power, whether or not his teachings are good or he is wise. Our issue is the authority of Jesus. In other words, our issue is his lordship. The reason why these miracles mess with us is not because we don't believe in the power of Jesus to heal. It's not because we don't like the power of Jesus to save and to redeem and to make whole again. It's because we don't like the way that he does it. And I wish we could say that we were more like the nobleman, but we're not. We're not even like the, the paralyzed man on the edge of the pool. We are the Pharisees in this story. Great, you have power. Great, you can heal. Great, you can provide. Why don't you do it the way I want you to do it? I don't like that you have the authority to choose how to use your power because that doesn't jive with how I want this to, to be. I want to read two quotes to you. One is pretty long, so you have, it'll be all, all on the screen. This is from um, John Duncan. He's a, uh, like a Swiss uh, theologian. They call him rabbi. He said, Christ either deceived mankind by conscious fraud, or he was himself deluded and self-deceived, or he was divine. There is no getting out of this trilemma. So he gives us three options about Jesus. C.S. Lewis says it this way. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg. How do you really feel, C.S.? Or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else he's a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He summarizes it later in an interview and says, here's what we have to decide about Jesus. Either he's a liar, a lunatic, or he is the Lord. And there is no middle ground. The issue for us, again, is not the power of Jesus. It's not the goodness of Jesus. It's not the mercy of Jesus. The issue we have with Jesus today is his authority to do what he wants to do when he wants to do it. Our issue is with his sovereignty. Because we love the power of Jesus. We love the authority of Jesus until it confronts our autonomy. Well, that's not how I would do it. That doesn't seem fair. Why does he get that while he doesn't get what it seems like he would have deserved? Why does that person get to lead while this person who's lived their whole life in a holy way doesn't get to? We love the authority of Jesus until it confronts our own authority. I'm a father and I'm a husband and I'm a pastor and at some points the authority of Jesus comes in conflict with what I perceive my authority to be. We love the power of Jesus until it confronts our opinions or our ideals 
or our preferences, our aspirations and goals. We love the power and authority of Jesus until it confronts our politics or until it confronts our sexuality. What about when it confronts our marriages and our relationships? No, no, no. God, I want to do this the way I want to. I don't like how things are going right now. You don't get to tell me what to do. Yes, he does get to tell you what to do. We love the power and authority of Jesus and it confronts us in our sexuality or our finances or even our calendar. We want autonomy over our schedule and over the way we handle our money. We love the authority of Jesus until it confronts our relationships or our comfort or our safety. Am I preaching to anyone else this morning? We love the power of Jesus when it serves us, but when it confronts us, we don't like it. In church, we are no different than the Pharisees in that case. Yes, heal. Yes, heal. No, 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 not that person. I was saying somebody who I think heals that, heal that person. We like the power of Jesus to, con- to convict our spouse, but not to convict us. We like the power of Jesus when it brings us financial gain, but not when it tells us how to survive and live in our marriages. We don't like that. And over a long enough timeline, we begin to believe that Jesus is not Lord. He is a lunatic or he is a liar. And we would never say it, but we never actually give ourselves over to his lordship. So thereby in our living, we are saying he's not who he says that he is. This is what the Pharisees have to confront. If you skip down, uh, Jesus goes, continues even more about, no, no, I have authority because the Father gave it to me. I do what the Father tells me to do. He's given me all authority here. Go down to verse 39. Jesus says this to the Pharisees. The issue is you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it's the scriptures, though, that bear witness about me. You see, the Pharisees had gotten so good at twisting scripture, using the Bible to avoid the authority of God, that now scripture became the authority instead of Jesus becoming the authority, and they could twist it and make it say whatever they wanted to. And Jesus says, you've missed the whole point of the scriptures. They're about me. Verse 40, but yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So I want to lay the Pharisees and the invalid at the pool of Bethesda next to each other. And I believe here's what Jesus is saying in verses 39 and 40 to the Pharisees. Do you want to be healed? Because you've been studying this for a long time. And I'm here in front of you. Do you actually want to be healed? Or do you want to continue your life the way you're doing it? What do you want Because the offer is still available to the Pharisees. Believe and you will receive eternal life. But the Pharisees can't do it because when confronted with the authority of Jesus, they choose their own autonomy every time. They choose their own preferences every time. They choose their own beliefs every time. They uh, choose their own opinions every time, their own uh, ideals, their own sexuality, their own uh, marriage. They choose what they want over what Jesus wants for them. And I believe in verses 39 and 40, Jesus is saying, I can give you the life you're looking for. Do you actually want it? I can give you freedom. Do you want it? I can heal. Do you 
want it. I can give you salvation. Do you want it? I can give you the identity you've been longing for. Do you actually want it or do you just want it the way you want to go get it? And here's the truth about following Jesus. You'll never get what Jesus has for you by doing it your own way. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father except through him. So you want freedom in your marriages? Follow Jesus. You want freedom in your sexuality? See what Jesus says about your sexuality. You want freedom with your finances? See what Jesus says about your finances. The authority of Christ is not meant to limit us, but to liberate us. And this is what we've been missing the whole time. The problem the Pharisees have is that they see Jesus as a threat to their freedom. And Jesus is saying, no, I'm not. In me, you find life. In me, you find freedom. I am the only way to freedom. But like the Pharisees, we find ourselves continuing to pursue our path and our wants and our desires and our comfort and our safety. And the whole time Jesus is saying, do you want to be made well? Do you want to be healed? Because you've been doing this for 38 years. Do you actually want to be made well? And then we have excuses, don't we? I mean, I would, but this wife of mine I mean, I would, but my kids. I would, but I don't have the income. I would, but and the offer is the same. Do you want to be healed? Do you want to be set free? We like Jesus as a savior because when someone saves you, they can give you suggestions about how to not find yourself in that situation again, but we aren't so keen on Jesus as Lord because when the Lord gives suggestions, they are commandments. And we don't like that. We like that he saves us. Now just let me go about my life. But is he Lord? Is he Lord for you? Is he Lord? So questions we have to wrestle with to know, okay, am I, am I depending upon the authority of Jesus or my own authority? Do you see the mat or do you see the miracle? If you're a Pharisee here under the five roof colonnades, at the sheep gate, what would you see? Would you see the man with the mat or would you see the miracle? When someone in your life gets rescued from sin, gets set free financially, what do you see? Do you see the ways they've done it wrong or do you see the fact that God intervened and set them free? When you see a marriage restored, are you upset at the way it happened or do you praise the Lord for what he has redeemed? Do you see the tradition or do you see the transformation? The problem with the Pharisees was they had a long-held tradition about how this should go, and this was not it. And finally, do you see the fault or do you see the freedom? When you see someone restored, when you see someone healed and they're walking in freedom, do you see their freedom or do you continue to just see their faults? Friend, if we see the fault and we see the tradition and we see the mat, we are no better than the Pharisees in John chapter five who have missed the miracle of Jesus. I love my kids. I love them. I love being their dad. And we have kids that, um, uh, one of them has just strong leadership 
ability. And there are times in our home where um, it feels like the other two kids have two dads and one mom because he likes to exert that leadership. And there are times for me where I pull him aside and I just say to him, hey man, listen, why don't you let me be their father and you can just be their brother? Why don't you let, uh, uh, let me handle the discipline? Why don't you let me handle that and you just go be with your brother and sister? Here's the freedom that we find in the authority of Jesus. You just get to be a brother or a sister. We already have a heavenly father. We don't need extra ones. In the lordship of Jesus, there is freedom to be found for us. It's not a threat to you. It's an invitation to freedom. And the longer you persist for 38 years, for generation after generation, in your own authority, in your own autonomy, you will never experience the freedom, the life Jesus has for you through the scriptures. So what is it today? Is he a liar? Is he a lunatic? Or is he Lord? And let's not just say it, let's live it. Not as a threat to limit us, but as a promise to liberate us. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? There's ways that we see the world that are informed by our past, uh, things that we've been taught, things that we've experienced. And uh, the miracle of Scripture, the miracle of the gospel, is that Jesus wants to reframe our perspective so that we no longer see things through our bitterness and our brokenness, but that we see things through his purity and his holiness. Is there anyone here this morning who would say, you know what, I, I actually haven't given my life to Jesus. I'm, I'm afraid of what he's gonna make me do. And I like my life. And it's like this morning, I feel like there might be freedom in following him. And so I, maybe, maybe today you wanna give your life to Jesus. You say, yes, I want to follow Jesus. I've never surrendered my life to Jesus. And I, want, I need him to save me today. Anybody this morning who would say, I, just, I, want to, I want to be saved. I need to be saved by Jesus. I'm tired of doing it my own way. Imagine for many of us, though, the issue is that our autonomy has come in conflict with his authority, maybe recently. And what you've chosen, what we've chosen over and over again is our own autonomy rather than the authority of Jesus. So anyone here this morning who would say, would you just pray for me? I'm at war with the authority of Jesus and it's exhausting me and I keep choosing myself. Would you raise your hand? Just boldly and courageously say, would you pray for me? I can't keep doing this. I'm not experiencing the freedom I thought I was promised. Praise the Lord. Father, I come to you this morning um, no better than anyone else in this room. As a person who daily has to lay down my autonomy to follow your authority. I don't like the way you do things sometimes. I don't like it. But would you give us here today, would you give us uh, the courage and boldness to just be a brother or a sister and not have to be the dad? Help us to uh, lay down our desires, lay down how we would do it, our preferences, that we might come under uh, your authority and believing that there is where we find true freedom. You are for us and not against us.
Forgive us for the times we've seen you as a threat instead of a comfort, or that we've seen you as an opponent instead of a liberator. God, set us free today, even for those who uh, wouldn't raise their hands. You know. And I know that you're relentless. You were with me. You won't let us up because you love us. May we be a church that experiences the freedom of truly following you. In Jesus' name.